Verse 1, and again, he, Jesus, began to teach by the sea. That would be the Sea of Galilee. And a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. And then he taught them many things by parables, which we know are earthly stories with a heavenly purpose. And he said to them in his teaching, listen, behold, the sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell on the thorns, and the thorn grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But the other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop, that it sprang up, increased, and produced some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundredfold. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, and those around him with the twelve apostles asked him about the parable. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. So that, and now he's quoting Isaiah 6, that was spoken 800 years before he came prophetically of what would happen to those who rejected him when he came in his time. So he's quoting Isaiah chapter 6 in context here of verse 12 in its fulfillment in this present time as he's teaching through parables. So he, we read in verse 12. So that, he speaks in parables, so that seeing they may not see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins should be forgiven them. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. That would be the word of God, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Verse 15, and these are the ones by the wayside where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among the thorns. They are the ones who hear the word And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones who sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it, bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. So of all the parables that Jesus Christ taught, this is probably the most famous one. It gets the most attention. Unlike all the parables, it actually has a built-in interpretation. So we don't have to wonder what the uh, things represent in the parable. They're, they're given to us. Now, remember, Israel was an agri-society. So the whole idea of teaching with farm analogies and agricultural analogies was very easy to grasp for the common people. This, we don't sow our food. We go to Mother's or Boney's or Trader Joe's or Henry's, right? You know, like we, we don't have to sow our food. We... You know, it's produced and we do a job and we go buy it at a grocery store. But in this society, you definitely, you planted, you sowed, you harvested, and the crops come and the rains come. And um, again, I, in my background, my grandmother, uh, Truesdale, Esther, she grew up on a farm in Wisconsin in the early part of the 1900s. And I had a great relationship with her down the stretch in the 80s when I was a pro surfer, and I'd go to Florida for events, and I'd drive from the East Coast to the Gulf Coast of Florida. She lived over there by Sarasota, and go to that side of the state and visit. 
And she would tell me about growing up. And of course, her husband, my grandfather, served in World War II. He was gone for three years, almost three years in the South Pacific. But inevitably, she'd always talk about growing up on the farm in Ridgeland Center, Wisconsin, and how she hated being on the farm. And it was just hard work. And everything revolved around the farm. And as soon as she graduated high school, she moved to Madison, Wisconsin, and worked two jobs to get off the farm, where she eventually met my grandfather, Fred, and grew up in Wisconsin. But as a teenager, her number one goal was to get off the farm. Farms are hard work. And even as an adult, I went back to that farm many times, actually. Jennifer's even been there to Richland Center, where you can just see the, the silos and the work that everyone did. It's, farming is hard work. And the, the Jews and their agri-society were designed by God through the agricultural society to be dependent upon God. God declared to them that he was the God who gave the increase, that as they're obedient, he'd give the early rains. As they trusted in him, he'd give the latter rains. So when you're dependent, when your crop is the determination of your food, it, you know, like, you're dependent upon the Lord. And that you're trusting in the Lord, which is what we're called to do anyway. So whether you earn income and go buy your groceries at Albertsons or something, we're designed to be dependent upon the Lord. The Bible makes that very clear. But when you live in an agri-society, like much of the world still does to this day, being in Japan back in September for the World Surfing Games with Team USA, it, we're in that rural part. It, actually, people told me the region, Tahara, where we were at, it's south of Tokyo about as you drive like six or eight hours. But people told us it's the equivalent of Modesto for Japan. Like it's a, it's a farming town, like a cow town, like Modesto is up in central California. But every morning we'd drive from our, our hotel to the condo site. It was like t- 20 miles, and it was all agri-society. And so you'd see all the Japanese uh, people, the, the farmers, and there's greenhouses everywhere, and everything's agricultural society, and it's dependent, the sea and the agri-society. So for us, this, this parable is a little harder because we buy our tomatoes, at least I do, at Trader Joe's. This was so strong contextually for the people when he told this parable. But he tells us why he's teaching in parables. Because the people that were responding, he was pulling them in where they could understand more of what he's teaching them concerning the kingdom of God. But the people that weren't responding, they're still tagging along looking for free food, free healings, free handout, and all these other things. He said to the multitude after he fed the 5,000 in the Gospel of John, when they all came back the next day for another free meal, thousands, he said, you seek me not because of the words I speak, but because I fed you. And so God knows the motives of our heart and what we're seeking. In fact, Jesus says in the Gospel of John, what do you seek? And it's a great question. Do we seek to yield ourselves to the perfect plan of God in our life? Or do we seek to, as if we think we could manipulate God to, do, to be some genie in the sky to work things for, in our favor because we know more than him? So when Jesus says, what do you seek? It's a good, good question. And so the parables, as Jesus' ministry began to go forward, he still had these multitudes. And we see that he got in the boat in verse 1. Remember last week we talked about there was multitudes, multitudes, multitudes. And he said, have a boat ready in case you're overwhelmed by the multitudes. And I'll get in the boat and, and, you know, as a safety net. We talked about being practical. And here tonight, if you are here last week, you remember that. Here tonight, he gets in the boat. And he's teaching from the boat. There's multitudes, multitudes. But they're not all there for the right reason. It was a great preacher, Vernon McGee, who said before he went to be at the Lord years ago that the hardest people to convert are the people in your church. For there's just multitudes and multitudes of religious people, but how many people are born again through faith in Jesus Christ? How many people are trying to save themselves through good works versus how many have received the gospel of grace? 
And we'll, we'll know on that day that we get to heaven, Christ Jesus, through faith in him. So when I gave my life to the Lord 31 years ago, it was interesting because I had a good friend when I ran the U.S. Pro Tour back in the 80s. I went to high school with him, and we traveled to Australia and all these places in the world together. And when I gave my life to Christ, I was very excited about the Lord. And, you know, I was just so excited about the Lord. I just shared Christ with everybody, and most everybody thought I was gone crazy. But, you know, my friends that knew me like, wow, this is really interesting. And, and I said, well, look, read, read the Gospel of Mark and, or read the Gospel of John. And he came to me with this text 31 years ago. And he said, why would God not, why would God want people to hear and not understand and uh, not be able to turn? I said, it's a very good question. But this is how it works. When you look at the parable of the minas and other examples of scripture, when God speaks and you hear his voice and you harden your heart to it, there's nothing more for him to say. Or as Billy Graham said in all of his preaching days, there's two things for you with God. The first plan of God is for you to be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. And the second plan is when you're saved to serve Jesus Christ. So until you get saved with faith in Jesus Christ, there's really nothing more that God can really do in your life apart from offer you salvation through faith in his son. But once you give your life to Christ and you enter into that faith and you're born again and you're filled with the spirit, then you can enter into service. And then the whole exciting journey of all the things that God has for your life begin to unfold when your life belongs to him and all those things are for his purposes. And I remember sharing that to my friend and I said, you see, God's not, there in Genesis 6, God says, my spirit will not always strive with man. His days are numbered. And that was before the flood, he said that. And there's opportunity to respond. But if we saw this last week of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in Jesus's generation, if we don't respond, his, his word's never going to change. He'll show his provision for us. He'll show his faithfulness to us. He did for me before I gave my life to Christ. But everything he's doing is moving someone to a saving faith in Christ. And once we have the saving faith, then what are you going to do in service to Christ? And when he calls you, like Matthew when he's in the tax collecting booth, or Peter and Andrew and John and James when they're fishing, are we going to follow and, and go after the Lord and forsake all to follow him and really enter into the life and the purpose of our life that he has for us. So that's why they see, and because he's, they've already heard the message of trust in him, but they're not doing that. So they're not, they just don't get it. And um, the multitude's there, but they're not, on this, they're not on the same frequency. You know, it's interesting, these, these music festivals they have in the desert and stuff. Um, there's different stages, and there's different headphones that you can listen to to hear the music of which stage you're listening to. So you get people all over the place in the middle of the night rocking out to music and people are jumping them down, but they're listening to different music from different stages. And that's what it's like. Jesus is teaching and there's all the, we think that everyone's hearing the same thing, but they're not. It makes sense to some people exactly with confirmation of the spirit, what God is saying through Jesus to them, but other people, they don't get it at all. They don't get the frequency. And that's why I began to speak in parables, because it's for those who, to him who has, the Bible says, more will be given. And to those who are responding, the frequency is very clear. It's razor sharp. It's surround sound. Because to him who has, her who has, more will be given. But to him who has and doesn't, hasn't done anything with it, even what they have will be taken from him. That's what Jesus taught in the parable of the minas and the talents in both Luke and Matthew's gospel. We're going to see more of that tonight. We talked about it last week, too, when Jesus, before he called the 12 apostles, their first disciples, and then he chose them to be apostles. They had been faithful in few things and little things, and they 
were called up to greater things to the apostolic calling that he had for them. And we talked about that as we're faithful with the little things, God gives us more things. Now, the the earthly story with a heavenly meaning is very clear using the agri-society background and the whole idea of agriculture and the seed and a crop and all these things. The first seed is when people are totally ripped off by the devil. And we talk about this. If someone hears the word of God and it's just, they don't get it. And I don't understand why they don't get it because the gospel is, is a very simple message that God sent his son to die on the cross for our sins, having lived a perfect sinless life. And he rose from the grave for our hope and justification according to the scriptures, as prophesied from the dawn of creation with Adam to this to the time Christ came. And it's a very simple message. It's, it's all-inclusive, whoever believes, and it's in it, but it's uh, exclusive in the person of Jesus Christ because he says he alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father. So that seed, that word, is the gospel message, and some people hear it, and they're like, what? And this, or like, oh, wow. And then, well, I watch all the old Billy Graham crusades. I've mentioned this. You can watch them on YouTube. There's like 60 of them at least on YouTube that you can watch. And all the different decades are there. Young Billy in the 50s at Madison Square Garden. Older Billy in his like 70s in Tallahassee or something. And they're always showing people in the crowd. And you literally, what you see in the crowd, those people are like, hmm. And people are like, uh-huh. You know, you, just, you see all these responses, young people, older people. And it's literally... Billy's the sower of the seed, and he's sowing the seed. And some is being ripped right out of people's hearts as it's going forth. And some is going in, and maybe people are having a response, but because they don't take root with the word of God after that. And when Billy Graham made all those movies back in the 70s and 80s, it was always about based on true stories or, or uh, realistic things that happened to people when they gave their life to Christ, what life was like. And you see that when we take root in the Lord, and the Bible tells us in Colossians to be rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ, and that our confidence will be in him, and we wouldn't be led astray by the traditions of men and the vain philosophies of men. So we're rooted in Christ and in his word, and we're growing in his word and the knowledge of Christ, and then we're fruitful. So we take root. But we know, like, there's always going to be persecution for Jesus' name. There's always going to be tribulation in living for Jesus in a world that rejects him. So we have to have root. So when someone gives their life to Christ, the first thing you want to do as an evangelist or a pastor is help people grow in their faith so when the hard times come, they can stand strong. I've mentioned this, but, you know, when I gave my life to Christ in 1987, I was still one of the best surfers in the world. And at the end of that year, after I gave my life to Christ, I, always, I look back now, it's very amusing, but Surfing Magazine, which I had numerous cover shots of, they listed the things that were out going into 1988. Colored wetsuits were going out. Four fin surfboards were going out, and Joey Brand was out. They listed me with four fin surfboards and colored wetsuits. You know, they didn't list anyone else. There's no other names on that list in that 1988 magazine, a surfing magazine. It's classic. And I was like, oh, dude, this is gnarly persecution. I've been rejected by my peer group, right? Whatever, you know. How many people, that, no, they come and go, right? But I just always found that amusing. Colored wetsuits, four fin surfboards, Joey Brand. You're out. I'm officially out because Surfing Magazine says in 19 I'm out because I'm going into ministry anyways and I'm about to live the next 31 years of my life and live happily ever after with Jesus and my wife and my family and my grandkids and everything else and still win a world title as a coach. So God's got other plans of what Surfing Magazine thought in 1988. But you got to have root because you get that. All those yes men in the 80s, when I gave my life to Christ, they, were, they all eventually were all gone. 
They all left. When I was the highest paid pro-surfer in the world, I had lots of friends. Wanted free boards, free wetsuits, and a free ride. Free parties, everything's free, free, free. I was a socialist surfer. All free today for everybody, right? Yeah. I give my life to Christ. It was me and Jesus, which is a good thing, because that's how it ends, right? I've watched a lot of people step into eternity. It's you and Jesus when you step into eternity. Reminded that even doing a memorial last week of a 39-year-old mother. It's you and Jesus on that last breath. And persecution, you got to have root. We need to have root in the word. And then we have the cares of this life that choke things out. There's, there's many things that vie for our attention and our, our affection of our time. Kirby Smart, the coach of Georgia football, the Bulldogs, who's a, a Christian, said this. He said, feed your goals and starve your distractions. I, thought, I saw that a couple months ago. I was like, what a great quote. Feed your goals and starve your distractions. There are many distractions for people who want to live for the Lord. And the devil can't trip you up. He definitely wants to distract you from the fullness of the things that God has for your life. So we see here these things that we worry about our bills. We worry about how we're going to pay for this. We've lived beyond our means. So how are we going to clear the credit cards? How are we going to clear up our credit? And all these things that can overwhelm you. But the simplicity of life in Christ and keeping it simple in Christ and serving the Lord. All decisions should be measured by is this ultimately what the Lord has for our life? And the bigger, the, the more far-reaching decision is like what college are we going to go to? Who are we going to marry? All these kind of things. The higher the stakes are, the more we need, to, the wiser we are to seek the Lord. We raise our kids to understand that in their journey. It's like, I don't need to pray too much over which Nikes I want to wear in the morning or something, but if I'm Think about investing thousands of dollars into something, a new venture or whatever, or going to commit to coach the U.S. team after resigning from the Chilean team. What, things that you have in life, those are big commitments, and we want to seek the Lord. And there's distractions. There are things that are designed to distract us, and there's that which is the, the, the things that God has for us. And it's really important that we don't let the cares of this life that we leave behind distract us from the things that God has for us in life, for the impact of all eternity and the legacy of our life and serving the Lord in our generation, in our time. The cares of this world, verse 19, the deceitfulness of riches and desires that choke the word, they're very real and, and they're endless. They're endless. And it all gets left behind and it all gets redistributed. And if it's not redistributed in a trust in an estate or a will, it gets redistributed by probate or you leave debt behind for someone to clean up and the bank has to forgive you and they were... They loaned you money and you died and you didn't pay it back and tough luck for the banks. It's just, it's life. It all gets left behind. But verse 20 is who we want to be. It's interesting math here. Notice this. If you have four types of soil that the word of God, so four types of people. So there's four people Jesus teaches. He's teaching in parables. Okay, so four people, one in four bears the fruit. You notice the one that gets choked out but doesn't come to fruit. So one seed gets plucked right away. The other one takes no root, wilts under pressure, and the third one's choked out. So the first three seeds never get to a crop. And using this agricultural analogy, but the fourth one is the person who hears, verse 20, accepts the word. God says it. I believe it. That settles it. They bear fruit, and they bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. Now, if you're looking at an investment portfolio and you're thinking long-term investments and you have like mutual funds or AmeriFunds, stuff like that, and you're a conservative portfolio and you're a money person, this, 
you want to find out who that one in four is, right? Think about this. That one in four, it's 25% of people hearing. And Pastor Chuck once said this. I heard him say it, that if, one, if, if 25% of the people you're teaching, even tonight, if 25% of the people are hearing contextually what you're teaching properly with the Holy Spirit, then you're, you're doing as good or better than Jesus in the parable of the soils. And I'm always determined, like, man, when he said that, I was like, I sure hope I'm that 25%, because I want to have and receive more. But if I've hardened my heart, and I'm, not, and I'm just doing church or religion, then uh, uh, that's an uh-oh moment. But if you are that 25%, that 25% yields just 30, 60, 100-fold. So you're like an investment broker. So we got four stocks here, and one of these four stocks is going to go gangbusters. One of these four stocks is going to go 30, 60, 100-fold. That's the one. And i got to be honest, in ministry, there's always people vying for attention, and you minister unconditionally. But when you're investing in 3, 12, and 70 like Jesus did, you're looking for those people who have and more can be given. You're looking for people who are faithful in the little things that can be entrusted with more things, women and men. That's not just the church. That's, that's the business world. That's a high school football team. If you're the coach of a high school football team and these guys are at spring ball and they come on time for spring ball and they do everything with a good attitude, they learn the playbook and looks like he's learning the playbook. He comes back in the summer for ball, you know, first day of practice in uh, July and he wants to be the quarterback and he knows the whole playbook and he's eating properly and he shows up ready. To him who has, more will be given. It's like the girl with the job and she wants to be the manager of the boutique or whatever. If she knows the lines and she's there to listen to the reps and, and takes interest in the product and what's going on, understands the store, the history of the company, naturally the owner's going to want to entrust more to them. When Hannah worked for this store at South Coast Plaza when she was a senior in high school at Calvary, she was very faithful. Hannah's fantastic with retail. She's great with people, our oldest daughter. And she graduated 08 Calvary Chapel High School. And they loved her, and so the owner just trusted her so much that she just let her run the store. She let a high school senior run that store and uh, open or close when she worked at that store there at Metro Point at South Coast Plaza. Because she had been faithful in the little things, more was entrusted. And that's how it works. So when we think about our lives and the parable of the soils, we want to be the one that's faithful. We want to be the one that receives the word, believes it, okay, receives it, and does it and bears fruit. That's who we want to be. We want to be fruitful. Don't you want your life to be fruitful? I mean, if Jesus is going to say at the end of your life, well done, good and faithful servant, he might as well say, well done, good and fruitful servant. Because faithful and fruitful are essentially going to be one and the same in their understanding in a biblical sense. Be fruitful. Remember Jesus came to that fig tree and it looked like, oh, it's a fig tree. There's a lot going on here, but there's no fruit. I don't want to look like a fluffy tree without fruit. I want to be fruitful, and so do you. And Jesus tells us if we're connected to him and we're dependent upon him, we will bear much fruit. When he told in John 15, he's the vine where the branches. If we abide in him and his word abides in us, we will ask what we will, and we will bear much fruit. For apart from him, we can do nothing. So you want to be fruitful, and you want fruit that's for all eternity. It's going to be to hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit. I want to be that 25% of an original 100% that bears quantum fruit for the kingdom. And so do you. No one likes a losing stock or a losing investment, and there's lots of them. And why? 
And listen, if you understand even stocks, why, why would you invest in a stock that's performing poorly if you know it's always going to perform poorly? Or if you're a football coach, why would you keep putting the same people out there on the field if they don't know the playbook and they don't apply themselves to give their best effort to be ready for that moment? It's important that we, when we give our life to the Lord, that we, we take root and we're on point and we starve the distractions and we feed the objectives and the goals that God would put in our life and we bear fruit. I got up nine days ago at a memorial for a 39-year-old that left behind a five-year-old and a two-year-old and I told four stories that were beautiful about her life. Her wedding day, the adopting of a child, and then the miracle baby they had after they were told they'd never have children, and that she sat right there in the front row for over 10 years at Worship Generation. And that was the legacy of her life for 39 years, and she passed in her sleep. And her husband was here Saturday night without his wife, and their five-year-old's adapting to a new school this week. That's life. That's life. The day of the Lord is just one heartbeat away. We read on. We get a cluster of parables now as we go forward in verses 21 through 34. We read this. Also he said to them, Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Then he said to them, Take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has to him, more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he or she would have, has will be taken away from them. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. For the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Then he said, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with what parable shall we picture it? It's like a mustard seed, which, when it is sown on the ground, is smaller than all seeds on the earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all the herbs." And shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. So this is a parable cluster. And the Gospels tend to do this, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when when the parables are recorded for us. And there's a few that are are not in here that are in other Gospels. There generally is a cluster, like you get them all together. So... Just going to briefly touch on these here. So the first one is the lamp. So we don't light a, a, a lamp to hide it. And Jesus said that he's the light of the world. And he says that believers are the light of the world. And we're to let our light so shine before men that people may glorify our heavenly father. So when we give our life to Christ, we're not meant to uh, retreat or retract uh, but we're to let our light shine before men. Or as Luke, my son, said the other day, we don't shine our light at men because that's what blinds people. Ah, the light, you know. We shine our light before men. It shows the way. Jesus is the way. Our life is an example of, of the quality of life that we have in Jesus' name. We let our light so shine before men. And the light is meant to be seen. The gospel is meant to be heard. And then he said, if anyone has ears, let him hear. In verse 23, so... 
There's nothing that's not going to be brought to light in this universe. There's no injustice that's not going to be set straight in eternity. There's no evil act that will not be held accountable, either through forgiveness, through faith in Jesus Christ, or accountability uh, and the casting out by Jesus Christ. Sin's going to be dealt with. It's one or the other. Either Jesus paid the price or we're going to pay the price. It's that simple. There's, like, you can get away with things under certain circumstances, but when it's all said and done, no one gets away with anything with the Lord. Like, you know, there's court cases where all the truth doesn't come to light. All the evidence isn't brought forth. We don't know all the facts. There are good judges and bad judges. Like, there's good doctors and bad doctors. Or good professors and bad professors. Good retail salesmen, poor retail salesmen. You know, like, there's good and bad in everything. And the courts are powerful because judges make decisions. But a good portion of the book of Proverbs is a warning against um, being corrupted in positions of power. And using it abusively. And the longer you live, the more you'll see injustices happen in the governments of men and in the politics of people. But there's perfect justice in eternity. There's nothing hidden that won't be brought to light. That's a sobering thought. For the world, Jesus said, for every idle word you'll give an account. For the world, they stand before the Lord, every idle word. There's nothing hidden that won't be revealed. Every idle word you'll give an account. And when people are cast out from the presence of the Lord, they're, they're going to be cast out for all the times they blasphemed the Lord, how they rejected the Lord. We were at lunch yesterday in Hermosa Beach. And I don't know if my wife caught it, but the people, two tables over, they're like speaking evil of the Lord. I just had to block out, like, not today. It's not going to bother me today. This is the most beautiful day of my wife. You're not going to wreck my date. But I feel sorry for you because what you're saying right there is a bad look before the king. So you should think about what you're saying. But Nah, yes, that's your deal today. People smoking weed over there, nah, that's your deal too. I'm not going to let that bother me either. This, this is us, the Lord, but every idle word. Now, for the believer, we stand before the Lord and our works are tested. It's not a judgment. It's just like, what's going to stand? What if our words are going to stand? There's nothing in it that won't be brought to light. What words are going to be jewels and precious metals, as it says in 1 Corinthians? What, what words are wood, hay, and stubble and just ash to be swept away? Then he said, take heed what you hear at the same measure. Okay, so whatever, whatever you do to him who has, more will be given. So that's what we're talking about. If you have, you get more. If you're faithful in the little things, more is entrusted to you. And then, so the first one deals with shining in character and, and knowing there's an account. The second one there in verse 24, 25, obeying the obvious. And then the third parable here is the uh, the, the kingdom, it grows. It's, the kingdom is like as if a man planted, verse 26. So it, it grows up and he, he doesn't know how. I mean, that's what crops do. They just grow. And then the harvest comes like, how did that happen? We planted it, it grew, and it does that. So there's things that happen in God's order that we don't understand what's working, but there's still a harvest and it's coming. And to me, that's an encouraging word because we think about all the good things that you would do in Jesus' name in blessing others. And we don't always see the fruit of that. Who even knows? Who knows how far-reaching your faith and what you, let, what you let God do in your life go. And listening to studies from a couple of years ago from the Matthew series, I was reminded of the team that we sent to Brazil, like Natalie Dean going to Brazil and that whole trip. And it was two years ago. And I'm listening to studies thinking like, who knows the fruit of like a 10-year-old in Brazil in, in 2017? All I know is when she's a star in the Willy Wonka play, she's preaching the gospel in the uh, program. We just don't know how far reaching that fruit is. We just don't know. It's like the crop. You scattered it, but well, look at there. You get to eternity, there's the harvest. We, we, just, we just don't know. So be encouraged 
don't go worrying doing good. That's what that third parable teaches us, to have faith in the process of what God's doing. The fourth parable is uh, 30 through 32, where it says that what shall the kingdom of God be like? Well, it's like this. It's like a, a mustard seed, and, you know, it, it, it starts a little, and it grows, and it becomes this major thing. And for me, I look at this one as like we need to understand the kingdom seems insignificant to so many people. It's little by little. And it may seem insignificant, something that we do, but we have no idea how far reaching it might go with the things we do for the kingdom of God. Again, like I was just showing on the other parable. But this one, it's like something that seems so nothing can become so much more in God's economy. Now, we might see that in time, but we might not. We, we might see in time the fruit of good decisions and faithful lives and, and people serving the Lord in a good way, but we may not. We might not see it. It's not about the, the quantity of time of a life. It's not about the quantity of perceived fruit of a life. It's about the quality of the life and the quality of the ministry and the hearts and the motives of what we do in obedience to the Lord. That little seed, if we just have that, you know, that little seed going of obedience and faith and believe that God can do greater things, that's how it happens. We just we have a vision for the greatness of God's kingdom and just know that there's so much more happening than what we can just see. But we read that last part, 33 through 34, verses 33 and 34, that he spoke to them in parables and he explained these things to his disciples. So God tells the people who care, and if we draw near to the Lord, he'll draw near to us. So whether it's events in our life or perplexing things or enigma riddles of our life that we're not sure about, Lord, what's going on? Why is this happening? What's the purpose? We draw near the Lord. He's, he's going to guide and lead us, and he'll explain all things. And Jesus invites us to come close to know what he's doing. He wants us to know what he's doing in our life. He wants to show the, his carbon fingerprints on our life as we look to him and let him work in our life. These are powerful parables, man. They're, I hope you have an ear to hear them. Seriously, look at me. I hope you have an ear to hear these parables and what they mean to your life, to our lives. Because 80 years from now, not one of us is going to be standing here in this room. And this is truth. And God's word goes forth to do what he purposes. We'd be wise to let him do what it wants to do in our lives tonight through these parables. The last text is the crossing of the water through the storm. Verse 35, on the same day. So just when you're digesting this, the teaching, on the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let us cross over to the other side. They're on the Sea of Galilee. They're on the side with all the synagogues. They're going to go the other side. And now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were also with him. And a great windstorm arose, verse 37, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern asleep on a pillow, and they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind was ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? We'll get into this a little bit more next week because the back part of this chapter connects to chapter 5 as well with the events on the other side of the sea. But just to wrap this up tonight, two phrases, verse 35, Let us cross over to the other side. And then he reproved them for not having more faith with him in the boat. So, First of all, I love that phrase, let us cross over to the other side. Jesus is always wanting to and looking to stretch us in new areas of our life, to new adventures. 
we were singing the Hillsong song of new wine. And Bobby wouldn't know, but one of the words that God gave me for this year was at the wedding feast in Cana, when they, the first of the signs of Jesus, as we're told that it's the first of his signs, that at the wedding feast that um, they, they ran out of wine and Jesus turned the water pots into wine. And the host said, oh, you brought, the people said you brought the best wine for later, where usually you give people bad wine when they've been drinking later on because they don't know the difference, right? And it, to, the Lord really showed me that the best is yet to come. And there's new wine. The Bible says sing a new song to the Lord. And there's new wine. Old wine's good. It stands. But you don't put the new wine in the old wineskins. Each stands alone. And what God did in your life in the past, let it speak for itself. But what God's doing in your life today, let that be the new wine. Let's get up to the new stuff God has. Let's, let's, let's write a new story. Let's let the, God, let the Lord write a new story with our life. And so when Jesus says to them, hey, let's go to the other side. Let's do something totally that we have not done before. We've been in all these synagogues in Capernaum, and we're doing with the Pharisees. Let's go to the other side where there's crazy men running around that don't have any clothes on. Let's go to the other side. Let's go to the other side of the tracks. Let's go to the other side of town. Let's go to the other side of the planet. Let's go to another culture. Let's go to a different society. Let's go to a different place. Let's go completely out of our comfort zone. Let's go somewhere we've never gone before. Let's just do something. Just get in the boat. Let's go to the other side. New wine, new wine skin. Well, what's going to be on the other side? That's, that's not the issue. No, I would like to know before I get in the boat where this boat's going. <laughs> no, faith is the seventh things hoped for. The evidence not yet seen. Get in the boat. All eyes on Jesus. Let's get in this boat. And we're going on an adventure. We're going to the other side. And all that you need to know when you get in the boat is that Jesus is the captain of the boat. If he's sleeping in the boat, that's fine. Because you see it's fine but that he's in the boat. He'll never leave us and forsake us. And when Jesus says, you know what? This is your comfort zone. Let's get out of that comfort zone. This is what you're comfortable with. Let's get you what you're not comfortable with. You're comfortable with you so you can do you without me. But let me get you over here where you can't do you without me. And let's make you dependent upon me. Let's get some new wine going and some new wineskins. Let's get a new song. Let's get in the boat and go to the other side of the sea where the moment, even in the journey, feels treacherous. See, that's the thing about adventures with the Lord, too. They are adventures. I tell people, uh, not always easy, but it's been an adventure. There are storms that oppose us. But when Jesus wants to just go, that's what he does. He's over everything. He's the God of the universe. Everything bows to him. Waves, sea, wind, everything. He's authority over everything. So the real issue is when he's saying, get in the boat to go to the other side, that we're like, okay, let's do this. Remember, these guys were fishermen, too. They knew this sea. It's like, uh, we can try to avoid the other side of the sea. Just so you know, Jesus, like, we've been fishing a long time. It's like, that's not the part of town you want to go to. Hey, come on, let's go. Let's go to the other side. So I love the closing uh, exhortation from this text. It's as simple as this in application. Hey, it's 2019. Be willing to get in the boat with Jesus, not know where it's going. Just the other side. There's a lot on the other side. Which part of the other side? It's so important that we're open to new seasons, new steps of faith. If we've been faithful in the little things, let them expand new things. To she who has, more will be given. But don't miss the boat that's going to the other side. When Jesus is saying, get in the boat, we're going to the other side, don't miss that boat. And for sure, when you get in the boat, make sure your faith's with you, right? Because when the storm arises, you don't want Jesus saying, where's your faith? You'd be like, whew, Lord, we're hanging on right now. We're hanging on. Because he said, let's go to the other side. 
So the storm is something he allowed in their life while he's sleeping. And when he rebuked the storm, he rebuked them. So get in the boat, have faith, all in, totally go for it. All eyes on Jesus, in Jesus' name. Amen.